Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Today on the Perception Podcast is Professor Ben Saunders. Professor Saunders believes that reading comics makes you smarter. He founded and directs the undergraduate minor in comic studies at the University of Oregon, the first undergraduate minor of its kind in the world. He's the author of Desiring Dawn, Poetry, Sexuality, Interpretation, and Do the Gods Wear Capes, Spirituality, Fantasy, and Superheroes, described as the best critical work on the meaning and impact of superheroes that has ever been written. He is also co-editor of Comic Book Apocalypse, The Graphic World of Jack Kirby. Professor Saunders has spoken on comics-related topics at universities and conventions across the United States and internationally, and appears as an academic expert in the History Channel documentary, Superheroes Decoded. He has also curated several exhibitions of original comic art, and recently served as chief curator for Marvel, Universe of Superheroes the largest and most comprehensive museum exhibition ever devoted to Marvel Comics. The show opened to record-breaking numbers at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle in 2018 and is currently touring throughout North America. So put on your cape, grab your shield, and suit up. We're about to geek out with Professor Ben Saunders. Welcome, Professor Saunders, to the Perception Podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I first discovered you uh, when I took my family this summer to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. There was an unbelievable exhibit called Marvel, Universe of Superheroes. And it was an incredible curation of all Marvel memorabilia from films and comic books from the very beginning. And I did a little bit of digging and I discovered the curator of the show was you, sir. (laughs) Tell me all about the birth of this incredible exhibit. Oh, um, well, uh, it's, it's actually, I, at this point, the fifth comics related show that I've been involved with. I mean, it all depends on how far back in time you want to go. Right. Um, the, the first, um, curatorial work I ever did, um, I had started teaching comics related classes at, at the university of Oregon and the student response had been pretty extraordinary. And I was, looking for ways in which I could get, um, amongst other things, the administration at that time to take more seriously the idea that there really could be such a thing as a comic studies program. We have a very good university museum, the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. It's one of the best kept secrets of the Northwest in some ways, because, um, uh, you know, outside of, uh, Oregon, a lot of people don't know it, but it's actually one of the largest, rotating gallery spaces in the Northwest, um, state-of-the-art climate control and all that kind of thing. Now, I'd never curated a show before, but we had an incoming new director who I pitched the idea of the art of the superhero. Um, and um, this is a show I don't think that we could get away with now. We could talk about why, but this was back in 2008 that I pitched the idea. So um, Marvel still wasn't owned by Disney. Um, and uh, as a Nonprofit university museum. Um, we weren't overly concerned about. Uh, we weren't trying to print a book or make a lot of money out of the show. So we had DC stuff, Marvel stuff, Image stuff, Dark Horse stuff. We had stuff from the earlier companies, MLJ. Um, you know, we had stuff from the 1940s through to 2001. 
um, over 170 pieces of original art. No bells and whistles, no, no sculptures or media tables or the kinds of things that you saw at the, the recent show, just a pure flat art show. Right. Um, and it was the best attended show in the history of that museum. Uh, I mean, you know, the first day, I, I mean, no one could have, I would hope it, it would be a success, but I could never have anticipated going to the opening and there was a line all the way around the museum of uh, people. And that's not just students, but local residents. So that really, um, it was one of those life-changing things where um, uh, I, not uh, within a couple of years of that, I had founded a program and um, I did another major show there on the art of EC comics, mm -hmm. uh, the and that I think to still probably the biggest gathering of EC originals um, since they were sold. And um, two of the guys from the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle came down to see that show. That's uh, Jacob McMurray and Brooks Peck, who are uh, both senior curators at, at, at that museum. And they saw the show and they, they, they liked it a lot. And they asked me if I would do a comics related project with them. And I was just about to go on sabbatical, so I was in the unusual position of being able to say yes. And then um, this is where the, the sort of, you know, the coincidences just start to pile up in an almost unlikely way. But before we had even decided what the content of that show would be, a, a European-based production company, which had already signed a licensing deal with Marvel to do a major show, and they were bringing a big budget to this, contacted the museum in Seattle and said, we would like this to be the launch pad for our Marvel show. Um, and my first thought was, well, I'm out. You know, if a major production company has just approached these guys in Seattle and said, I, we want to do a big Marvel show, and they already had money and, and <clears throat> licensing, why would anyone need me? And um, uh, Jacob McMurray said to me, no, 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 we want you, to, we don't have actually anyone on staff who's a comics expert. So even if we say yes to this um, opportunity, we still want you to curate it. So, uh, Obviously, that had to be okayed by the production company. I had like a 15-minute interview with the guy who runs that company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, asked me to write him a manifesto for the show, what what I would want. Mm -hmm. um, and that I knew how to do. So uh, it, the, within uh, a day or two of that, um, I got a contract and, and we were meeting in Seattle, a whole team, including this German design team. And this is the part... I, I'm giving you a very long answer, Jeremy, and you can stop me at any point. No, no, this is fascinating. I have a lot more questions just about this in general. Well, the part that was kind of mind-blowing about this project when I look back at it is that, you know, I'm a university professor based in Eugene, Oregon. The museum where the show launched is based in Seattle. Um, the production company that um, financed um, the show is based in um, Germany. The design team is based in a different city in Germany, um, and all of the lenders of the private obje uh, objects that we borrowed, because you know Marvel Studios are very cooperative and wonderful, but all of the ask art you about that, but all, all the art is in private hands. So there's, there's literally half a dozen private collect collectors who are scattered all over the country, and I was the only person who was in contact with all of those people all of the time. Oh, and then there's Marvel themselves, of course, Marvel Brand Assurance, who are, who are overseeing every step, read every label. Um, so it, it was, I imagine it, you know, I had no way of ever knowing for sure, but I imagine it's a bit like directing a movie or something mm -hmm. where, where you're the one person who's kind of in touch with every stakeholder. Um, 
and it was intense. Uh, uh, but we but we did it. How long uh, did it I, all take to assemble? A little over a year uh, from sort of kind of agreeing what the direction of the show would be to um, the opening, which was less time than I would have liked. I had, um, I mean, I would worked part time on my EC show, but it took, I spent about three or four years pulling together the EC show. Mm-hmm. So um, this was very different from that point of view. I was on a different kind of clock. So the costumes specifically from the films, were those uh, donated by Marvel Studios? Yeah, Marvel uh, were were um, we couldn't have done this without their approval or license from the beginning. And um, Marvel w- was from the beginning really cooperative in terms of access to that material. I mean, essentially, what I did was I wrote a um, just to get us started. I wrote a, an eighty-page script, mm-hmm. which was a pure fantasy. It was based. I mean, not a pure fantasy because I knew where some of these objects were. But um, I basically designed the whole floor plan of the show in my head, um, gallery by gallery, imagining what I would hope to see as a Marvel fan in each room. So, you know, here's the Fantastic Four room. What would you hope to see in here? Here's the Black Panther. What would you hope to see here? Um, And here's a tribute to Stan and Jack. What do you want to see here? So I just... Uh, I, I, I acted as if we were just going to get everything we wanted. And well, you, got, you got me with the Hulk. I'm, the, I'm a Hulk fan, huge Hulk uh, fan. And uh-huh. in particular, the Hulk television show from the late 70s with Bill Bixby uh-huh. and Lou Ferrigno. And the fact that you put that in there with a beautiful montage of his hitchhiking. I yeah. You nailed it <laughs> to the Lonely Man soundtrack, of course. Yeah. That, thank you so much. Yeah, that's that's. Um, I was so yeah, touched that was... by that. That was like just for me. Well, I, I felt, I, you know, I mean, for both of us, <laughs> so I'm really glad you, I agree. I think, I mean, I think my, one of the things that I was trying to do is think in a genuinely transmedia way about Marvel over its 80 year history, right? And um, in terms of crossing over into other media, in terms of the classic Marvel characters of the 60s, I mean, the, you, Captain America is a slightly different case because there's, there is, um, uh, you know, that um, universal movie serial from the 1940s. But with the exception of Cap, none of the other characters have other media iterations until the 60s. And that Hulk TV show is the first really successful attempt to translate a Marvel property into, um, into another medium in and, that kind of treat way. Treat it as a serious content. Yes, to do a, and to do live action rather than animation. Um, and... In my memory, the music, that very sad mm-hmm. piece of piano music, was a really important element of the show. That was, uh, you know, I mean, you, you'd lose it now in, the, in this era of um, streaming shows where, you know, the, the Netflix trick of just uh, cutting right, the credits. The and next going. episode, yeah. Um, and so it's, it's a phenomenon that, that no one even really appreciates now. But that was such an important part of of the um the overall tragic tone of the show and in the end you know they did a lot of things right they knew i think it was an early example of figuring out what to keep and what to change you know um the hulk tv show is um it's kind of it's almost the fugitive in that Uh, it was very much inspired by the fugitive yeah you know it's got that 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 classic so it's got a classic tv show model but Mm -hmm. it's doing the marvel thing 
I didn't know it was directly inspired, actually. Did they say that? Is that a- Yeah, that we actually interviewed the creator of the show, Kenneth Johnson, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, who was inspired by The Fugitive, uh, Les Miserables, and huh. uh, Mr. McGee was inspired after Inspector Javert. Uh-huh. And then, of uh-huh. course, uh, Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all of these pieces of literature kind of were mixed together to create right. it. It's why it was so brilliant. Well, I love that because a couple of those sources are, of course, sources that Stan and Jack would have had in mind. Of course. Jack and Hyde and Frankenstein were in there, very much in their heads. But neither of them were thinking in terms of, you know, the of, of the logic of really successful um, drama or television shows. And so that, that I think that, that I think that's also part of what I think of as as Kevin Feige's genius as well, actually, is that that ability to recognize it's not about being faithful to the comics because that's an overly simple way of understanding what's happening and actually involves um, it's it's never how it's worked anyway with any of these major um, properties. They go transmedia pretty fast and characters move back and forth from one media iteration to, to the other. Um, it there, But there is this idea about figuring out what's essential about the characters mm-hmm. and then making it work in in the new medium and i th- i think uh, it, he really knows how to do that it sounds like um sounds like mr johnson knew how to do that too yeah i mean he was uh talk about a great little collection in his home when we uh interviewed him for for the uh our video blog um he showed us some stuff that was great you know uh like a, a hubcap that was used for uh v as a spaceship with little christmas lights on it i mean the most basic things because back then mm-hmm. you know they didn't have the visual effects that they that we do now um, but you're right. I mean, Kevin nails it as far as with the with the MCU because he's also adding these personalities to the characters, right? And you right. get to really understand what they're going through. You know, I mean, my favorite, uh, all of my favorite movies from the uh, from all the superhero movies are the first ones where they start they figure out their power or they've been bitten by a spider or you know he gets injected with the super serum and now all of a sudden he's looking at himself and he's three times larger than what he was you know when he first went in the pod you know i love that stuff so i think that's where it gets nailed and why the movies are so good um so just to go back to your childhood uh you grew up in wales correct that is correct yes so you know i grew up in in queens and my you know Every day after school, I would go to the comic book store, pick up my, you know, X-Men. I'm a, I'm a huge Wolverine fan. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I would pick those up and, and Alpha Flight, which is, you know, I, I feel like it's the redheaded stepchild of uh, the Marvel <laughs> Universe. But, uh, you know, all these comic books. What was it like for you being, a, you know, a child growing up? Where did you go to pick those up? I, I can't imagine a comic book store in Wales. No. Um, I mean, I'm from Cardiff, which is where they film um, the Doctor Who show, at least the first several seasons of it. So you you guys have actually, if you watch that show, you've seen where I'm from. Uh, it's a city that has like a lot of, like a lot of cities since the 80s, it's changed an enormous amount. But um, it was always one of the more uh, uh, um, multiculturally interesting areas in the United Kingdom because it's a docks town. It's a, it's a, a big seaport. It was one of the biggest coal exporting um, cities in Europe, actually, in the um, 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, but no, comic book stores uh, outside of, I'm not sure if there were, when I was growing up, there might have been one in Bristol and there were a couple in London, but there's certainly, what we had 
we had uh, originally it was news agent distribution and it was very spotty um and i would actually if it was american comics that i was trying to find um i would before i would take them out of the rack and i'd look at the back and if it said to be continued i'd put it back because there was no guarantee that i would find the next issue um but when i was about six or seven years old um my grandmother bought me a british reprint of uh, uh, spider-man comics weekly there there's no british dc but there is uh, there was a british marvel and um I have a couple of theories about why that is. I think one of them is, as you probably know, Stan married an English woman. Um, and I think that um, by creating a small British Marvel operation, Stan would have been able to make regular trips to the United Kingdom on a tax-deductible basis. Sure. Uh, so I, <laughs> so it me at all if part of Stan's logic was every time he went back to the old country to see his wife's people every time they wanted to go there um you could do it on the company mm-hmm. uh, i have no proof of that it just seems like a very stan thing to do <clears throat> but um the result was that these comics were being reprinted they were reprinting the classic 60s material in the early 70s when i was a child so i was reading everything um out of sequence and um years later so gwen stacy didn't die for me until you know 1976 um, uh, and, uh, but it meant that I was exposed to, I think what in some ways is what I still think in some ways as the best stuff, or at least the classic stuff, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Ditko and Ramita senior on Spider-Man, um, Kirby on, um, Thor and the fantastic four. Um, and then, uh, when I was about in 1977, a, a British weekly called 2000 AD launched, mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, still coming out and still called 2000 AD, which I just think is uh, wonderful. It tells you a lot about British ideas of the future, um, that, that uh, uh, this is still called 2000 AD. And this was um, a, 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 just an incubator for homegrown um, British comics talent, many of whom would then cross over to the United States in the 80s. So, you know, flash forward to when I'm like 12, 13 years old in the early 80s, um, something really remarkable was happening in in British comics um, that you know I mean I missed the, the the golden age of Hollywood and I missed the golden age of rock and roll and all my favorite bands were probably broken up by the time I discovered them but mm-hmm. uh, but I was there for this thing that was happening in in British comics I went to a show convent a science fiction convention in Cardiff in 1982 in the central hotel i still have the program for it and if you paid the five pound registration fee the names of everyone who'd registered for the show are listed in the back and there are 317 names which means that 317 people attended that show right and i i was moderating a panel with kieran gillen and jamie mckelvey um just a a year or so ago at the emerald city con and i looked out at, at the room and realized there were more than 300 people in the room um, you know, so and it just all suddenly snapped into place in my mind. My God, the first show that I went to, that there are more people in the room than attended the first show that I went. To. Wow! And the guests at that at that show, the comic guests at that show were um, David Lloyd, Gary Leach, and Alan Moore. And Alan was um, uh, had, had Watchmen wasn't even a gleam in his mad eyes at that point. He was a um, 
he had written Future Shocks for 2000 AD. And that's and a magazine called Wario had just started to come out. I think the first four segments, six-page uh, um, episodes, as they were at the time, in black and white, of V for Vendetta had appeared in that, that magazine. Um, so I took a shopping sack of these 2000 ADs in there, and he signed every one of them. Over the course of that weekend, we talked, I mean, literally for hours, because they weren't even the primary guests. You know, the guest of honor was John Brunner, the science fiction novelist. Um, and so I was exactly the right age where a lot of people think you're supposed to give up comics. Mm -hmm. And I met these folks, and they were so excited about the potential of the medium, and they were doing new things with the medium. Um, it really was kind of like, why would I stop? You know, um, now that didn't mean that I stayed a Marvel. It changed everything. It meant I start, instead of following characters, I started following creators. Mm -hmm. I became a lot more interested in, in, in that. Um, and then I had this great moment of almost nationalistic pride, probably the way that my dad must have felt when the Beatles conquered America. You know, when when when, when people like Alan and Dave Gibbons um, and Brian Bolland and um, you know, and all uh, and Grant Morrison and all those folks start crossing over um, and and writing these these American properties. I had every reason to then keep, yeah, I, I kept reading these these American comics as well. So um, in between there, there was the X Men, of course. That that was that also happened at the right. I mean, you know, what was going on with with those? Were, I think I still encountered as British reprints rather than reading the American versions, but. Um, I, I, you know, I, another thing that, in terms of keeping me reading when you when you're supposed to quit this childish habit, uh, I think that um, the, the Claremont Burn uh, Cockrum X Men run was was absolutely um, formative. So did yeah. did in did reading and collecting comics as a as a kid inspire you to become an English professor? Yes. Um, I, I think I mean I learned to read from comics. Mm -hmm. I I can actually remember. Uh, I remember um, trying to read this Spider-Man comic that my grandmother had bought me, which was this British reprint, and not you know it it was I can remember the story uh, vividly, um, and of course it, you know he's being chased by the police. Um, I remember giving it to my mother and saying, "Is he a good guy or a bad guy? I don't understand." And my mother. <laughs> And my mother said, um, well, I think with a name like that, he'd have to be a baddie, right? <laughs> so I thought, so, 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 so not only was this my first encounter with moral ambiguity, it was also the first time um, that I realized you can't trust your parents. Um, and all of, these, <laughs> all of these things, uh, you know, out of this, and, and, I, and she didn't want to read it to me, um, you know. She just was, you're going to have, if you want to read that, so I, I actually can remember having the thought, if I want to understand what's happening in these comics, I am going to have to learn how to read. You know, I'm really going to have to do this reading thing. I, I, I don't know if that's a false memory or not, but I swear it's like something yeah, that... Just, just to interrupt real quick, my son is nine, hates reading, but he'll read mm -hmm. comics. And I'm yep. trying to use that to get him to fall in love with reading in general. Um, yes. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a, it's a gateway to it for sure. Yes, no, it's a, it, it, and it became, um, and the, and because of this, you know, what I was sort of going on at too much length about earlier, probably, um, the medium matured with me. Um, uh, it, you know, that something happened in British comics that involved 
a kind of increased level of sophistication um, narratively. And I, and I grew with that. So even as I was learning to love prose works and learning to love poetry and learning to love Shakespeare, um, and nobody's born with, I think, a love for these things. You need a good teacher to, to help you appreciate them. Um, as that was happening, the comics kept sort of moving along with it. And I was really lucky in that I had teachers that I could take the comics to. I mean, I remember an English teacher actually stopping me in the corridor to show me a newspaper article about Alan Moore, um, knowing that I was a fan years later, you know, that just because he knew I was interested. That's good teaching. You know, I, I was lucky that I had good teachers who did not dismiss comics. Um, you know, my, my, my parents were ambivalent, but they didn't actively discourage it. My grandmother was very supportive of it. She she was the one who always said reading is reading. And she was the one who took me on the trip to, to my, my first ever comic book store. My, it was grandma who took me to my first comic book store. Yeah, my, you know, my dad uh, would read my comics after I was finished with them, <laughs> which was great. And he would take me every month uh, to a comic store in Brooklyn called the Comic Book Scene. Ah. And that's where I would collect my monthly issues of The Incredible Hulk and Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer. Well, see, you guys and many Brooklyn. others, and and he would he would always read mine after I finished the issue. So that's a very a cool. Me- I think you know you said a couple of things there that made me, you know, feel this envy. One of them is just you know that wasn't a bonding experience I ever had with my father, but also you know you're from Brooklyn and Queens, mm-hmm. and it, you know these are places where these that, characters are from. <laughs> yeah, and that I knew about in this kind of mythic. I mean, I it it isn't just that reading these comics directed the course of my career they shaped the, the my decisions about my decision to move to the united states um was at least partly based on on this i mean i'm almost embarrassed to admit it now because it seems so naive i was 25 years old when i first visited new york city and um and this was in 1994 early 1994 and i of course knew that i was not going to see Spider-Man swinging from building to building. But the whole time, I, whenever I emerged from a subway or, you know, walked, I, I, I couldn't help but, like, hoping I would catch him out of the corner of my eye somehow. Mm-hmm. And there was this odd feeling of um, uh, disappointment is too strong a word because it wasn't like I really expected it. But there was something like that I could feel these little strings to my childhood um, you know, Brilliant. sort of, yeah, yeah. Because and, and in in some of these issues, uh, there were even addresses like Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum had an address on Bleecker Street. Right. So when you get right. to New York, you probably thought, "I'm going to go see if that building's really there." Yeah, or just you know, like, I, was the Baxter Building a real place right. or not? I, mean, I didn't really know, you know. And, and um, oh, it's not a real place. Oh, that's kind, you know. So of course, you know, the last time I went to New York, I saw three different Spider Men. So you know, things are really Times Square. <laughs> so it's probably caught a couple of rats as well. Yeah, so, yeah. So so things have, have changed um, a lot, but um, but you guys come from places that 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 I knew through these these totally sort of you know, I think I think there's a, a, a America's best version of itself appears in some of these comics. Mm-hmm. It's a, and it's a, it's a uh, you know it's a it's it's an anti-racist America. Uh, it's America where you know. Um, buildings blow up and aliens invade, um, but it's also an America where um, uh, 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 where these resources of courage to stand up against 
um, some very obvious wrongs. Um, are you know where pe you just have examples of people doing this um, all the time, and I had this naive notion really that you know, yeah, I just was hoping that I would come to America and and be bitten by a radioactive radioactive spider and <laughs> transformed yeah transformed into the superhero that deep down I I believed I was and it isn't what happened I became an English professor but it, it it's <laughs> Stanley wrote the intro to the book that. Uh, is the companion to the exhibit? Did you yeah. get to meet him, work with him? Not direct, not on that. I I was I was only so two things. Um, uh, no, that was done um, through the agency of Danny Fingeroth, who um, uh, is was a good friend of Stan's. Has just written a biography of Stan's. He'd actually be if you haven't had him on your podcast, he'd probably be a great be a great guy. Write his name down as we speak. Um, Danny was a. a uh, the editor of the Spider-Man um, entire Spider-Man line at Marvel um, in the 80s and early 90s um, and a, a, a good friend he was a good friend of Stan's and so he was able to arrange that I believe it's the last thing that Stan wrote uh, I, I I haven't you know taken steps to confirm that but I I'm not aware of anything happening afterwards and, and he did die quite shortly into the run of the show um, Do you know and when he got to see it he did not get to see it. Okay. He did not get to see it. Um, and um, when and the catalog was actually slightly delayed. So when I saw that, um, uh, I teared up mm. the first time I read that. Um, and because, I, I mean, you know, yeah, no, Stan put his, his, Stan gave his blessing to something we did. You know, it, it, it felt... Um, it, it re and the fact that it might have been the last thing of that kind that he did, uh, I, I, I felt really blessed. But yeah, really blessed by that. Um, I was only ever in the same room with him once, and that's a pretty good story. It's um, uh, San Diego Con 2008, and he was on the stage as part of a, a panel on um, uh, queer superheroes. And um, it's a bizarre thing, really. Um, Oh, we got the. Uh, should we let the? Should we let that happen? It's such a busy area. We'll let it just part out. But you know what? It's such that there's a robbery in progress, and Spider-Man swinging right by our window, so we got distracted. <laughs> but, but please go on. I, want, I would love to hear the story. Yeah. So San Diego, 2008. Um, it's a panel on um, queer superheroes, and um, uh, you know, Gail Simone was on it, and. Um, uh, Andy Mangles, and um, there was this guy whose name I'm going to blank on now, who had written a prose novel called Hero, which was a coming out story about a superhero. And um, he was kind of dominating the panel and acting as if he'd invented the whole notion of queer superheroes, which was a bit frustrating. And um, uh, Stan, I think, Stan's production company at the time was maybe going to, you know, turn this novel into some other you know, form of media movie or something that was Stan was sort of vaguely attached to the project, but it wasn't really clear how. Mm. And after a long, um, not very interesting panel, frankly, the moderator turned to Stan and said, Stan, you've been unusually quiet. Um, what exactly is your involvement with this project? And Stan said, I'm just going to do what I always do. Let everyone else do all the work and then take all the credit. <laughs> and there, <laughs> And the room erupted. It was like, um, I mean, it was the only memorable moment on the panel. It was hilarious. People were applauding. <clears throat> and I thought, 
I have I have seen Stan's true genius in action here because this is he took this thing for which people hate him. He took this thing for he took the thing that is you know the the, the single black mark on his career, right? Mm. Which are these arguments about credit. We'll create it, um, right? You know, and and he turned it into and he made it a moment for everyone in the room to love him. Um, it was it was it was astonishing, really. Um, a cheeky and uh, you know he had a big smile on his face as yeah. he said um, and I just thought that's it I, I have you know I, I've I've seen um, I've seen that's my stand moment <laughs> that's awesome did you yeah. get to meet anyone else uh, any of the directors or Kevin Feige anybody you know on the films no I have never met Mr. Feige I would love to meet him I think he really is I think one of the most talented creators in comics doesn't work in comics and it's Kevin Feige um, I, I um, we got to meet at the opening we had um, uh, uh, um, so obviously uh, G. Willow Wilson came to the opening in Seattle and that was a great um, encounter and uh, partly because we had this sculpture of the Ms. Marvel character, this life-size sculpture of the Ms. Marvel character. So it was great to see her reaction to that. Um, and um, uh, the the um, Kevin Smith attended the opening, and oh, cool. uh, and I, I had a moment where he was walking around it before it had actually opened, and I was introduced to him as the curator, and he extended his hand to me and he said, "Oh, I like your work." And I thought, no, I'm in the twilight zone. You know, like, I, like, I'm supposed to say that to you. Uh, um, that's like, uh, so, you know, that, that, was, that was great. Um, but Marvel's, um, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, this is a museum show that was not funded by Marvel. It was funded by an independent production company that is based in Europe. Um, and so really, um, you know, it's not... If, if more people who were directly involved in the making of other Marvel media actors or producers had a chance to see it, that would be a delight to me. I don't know how much on the radar of these very busy people it is. Mm -hmm. um, well, we posted about a thousand photographs uh, from it on our social channels over the summer when I visited Philadelphia. Oh, thank so you. So anyone for that follows us definitely got a, a lot of images from your show. Well, that's that, that's that's great. That's great to hear. I, you know, in the end, I, I mean, I'll, Brian Crosby, who's I was close uh, to chartering a bus to take my entire company to see it. Oh man, that's a, that's amazing. That's a, <laughs> well, it it's it will be coming back to the United States. is currently about to open in Canada, um, but it will be re returning to the states. It's going to um, the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit mm -hmm. next. Um, which is a great space, and you know, I, um, I, I'm, and then um, we're looking at locations um, in um, in other parts of the states before before it goes to Europe. So there should be plenty of opportunities for people in the in the U.S. Uh, in some of the bigger cities to see it, and it's been really well received. It's been really gratifying. I just wish that. Um, uh, I, the experience of showing people who are directly involved, I mean, you guys are clearly people who particularly appreciated what we were able to do, that combination of media materials, original art. I've watched people walk through the show, and it's one of those, you, you know, some people go take three, four hours, and they try to look at everything. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who blow through it in, in under 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I think 
how how you know you you pay to get in here, you know, yeah. and they literally run from costume case to costume case to costume case, and don't don't look at anything else, and don't, um, uh, you know, and for me, I mean, I I am enormously grateful to Marvel Studios for loaning us those things. I think when you get to see those props and costumes up close and see what works of art they they are, um, that's that can be a revelation, um, but. The, the material that I'm most invested in, what, and the hardest things to get hold of, are actually the pages of art where all of these characters began. And, you know, the bottom line is uh, all of these extraordinary fantasies begin as works on paper. Mm -hmm. they, it's pen and paper, and a guy, usually a guy by himself, um, dreaming this stuff up. Mm -hmm. And, and I, when we, you know, we had opportunities to, you know, the earliest version of the show, we had borrowed a page from Amazing Fantasy 15 from the Library of Congress. They won't give, they wouldn't let that travel, and, and, it, and you know, for obvious reasons, right? They treat it like it's a page from the Constitution or something. Of um, but <clears throat> we had borrowed the page the first time that Spider-Man appears in costume. And I was looking at that in the Spider-Man gallery and realizing you know, there's a moment in human history where that was the only drawing of Spider-Man in costume. Mm -hmm. The period in where, where when Steve Ditko drew that, that was, the, and now you think how many times that image has been reproduced yeah. and the toys and the movies and the cartoons. Or, or how many times he, he, he drew it and said, ah, this is no good and, and crumpled it up and threw it in the trash and started again. Right. You know, how many are we missing out on? Mm -hmm. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. And we do have, you know, a couple of things like that, right? I mean, the show has... The very first sketch of the Punisher, for example, by um, by John Romita Senior. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and you know, because some artists kept those things and some didn't. There's a, quite a lot of concept sketches by Romita Senior. Um, so what that suggests to me is John was one of those guys who is one of those guys who keeps his stuff. You know, right. he kept, he kept his concept. There was a file, and he put the concept drawings in the file. But most other artists, once you've moved from the concept stage to the, the actually drawing the character on the pages, you throw away that concept sketch. You don't need it anymore. So we're just lucky that Ramita Senior chose to keep to keep some of those things, and we can we can show them. I I know that one of the goals of the show is to really show how uh, comic books do belong on the walls of museums. Talk to us a little bit about the course and the minor that you, you teach at the University of Oregon and, and why you believe comic books belong in academia. Sure. Um, so first, I should ask, there's a guy right outside my window with a leaf blower. Can Is it coming through or, or are you... Don't, is don't it hear a, anything. No, we're good. Okay, let me know if he moves near and it, it creates a problem. So, um, no problem. So, yes, I've always been an, an advocate for... Um, uh, for comics as um, as, a, as educational material because it they so directly affected my own life. Um, the the idea that and you can teach so much with it. I mean, you can teach um, uh, ideas about shifting ideas about um, uh, race, gender, and sexuality. You can teach different ideas about. Um, uh, uh, particular moments in American history that are then, you know, they're, they're historical resources that are reflected through these stories. You can also teach um, 
the history of um, you know this incredibly semiotically rich tradition of American cartooning and illustration. Um, you can teach um, uh, ideas about um, the big th- superhero comics in particular. They take on big themes, big big themes. Um, so it's it's only you know a short step from um, from teaching this material in a classroom. Uh, you know, in the educational institution, to then thinking about big other institutions, art institutions, museums, and so on. Um, so far, this is interesting, and you guys may have some thoughts about this. Um, wh- I, I really hope this show would go to art museums. It has been primarily taken up by science museums. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't know quite what that's about, uh, but I think it's a shame in some ways that the art institutions are proving more conservative um you know and the 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 science museums are like basically well kids will love this right Uh, right. so you know and we get a lot of kids and you bring them in and they're thinking again that gateway you know they'll come in and they'll learn all kinds of things and what they learn doesn't matter more important is that they learn Mm -hmm. but i think uh of some of the artists who worked at Marvel, they're some of the, the most important commercial illustrators in, in the in 20th century popular culture. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you bring up a good point. I know, like, the Guggenheim had a you know, motorcycle exhibit, and, you know, I, I'm a car, motorcycle, anything with a motor fanatic, but, um, you know, they are works of art, but so are these, you know, oops. So are these books and yeah. uh, and the, just the, the creations of these characters and you know the styles of each one of these artists is very different. You know, yeah, you had the uh, the the kind of the three D perspective of Kirby with the hands and uh, Kirby the Kirby crackle. You know, everybody knows all these. I mean, you have to be a little bit of a Marvel fanatic to know that phrase, but everybody even sees it during a, a lot of these movies. You know, Thor Ragnarok had a lot of those bright colors and things like that that then the, the patterns twirl, just the, the literal twirl of the hammer you know that's a yep. pure yep. visual in, invention which it took them for some reason like more than three movies to finally get him to do that you know it's like mm-hmm. the first time he did it it was like it's just like yes yeah, fantastic <laughs> somebody read the books you could do that yep. um there are no i agree i mean it's a visual kirby invents a visual vocabulary for the expression of you know, certain kinds of power. And, and mm-hmm. it's so internalized now. He also has a visual vocabulary for what we might call just loosely the cosmic. Mm-hmm. Yep, you know, exactly. Sort of yep. that, that, that mind-expanding quality. And Ditko, in his Doctor Strange run, I, I, am, I, do not, I do not think it is an exaggeration, a just an accurate description to say that if Kandinsky, in his late abstract period, had somehow decided to draw a superhero comic, it would look like those issues of Doctor Strange. Because um, when when Doctor Strange, when Ditko's Doctor Strange is going into those other dimensions, and they're just they're pure abstract shapes, um, it looks that stuff looks like you, I, I will show students direct comparisons. This is what late Kandinsky looks like. Mm-hmm. I. I I'm not sure if Ditko knew that material at all, um, but he, in the, out of the drive to try and visually represent something that is completely unlike anything human eyes had ever seen, he ended up reaching, uh, you know, really pushing on the threshold of 
of what you would see in a comic book at that time, right? And I think that that's the other, you know, we think of Kirby's collages as another example mm -hmm. of really pushing on the edge of what the medium could do. That stuff couldn't even print properly in terms of what he was creating mm -hmm. as an original. It wouldn't reproduce in, in the way that he wanted it to. But if you were a kid in the 60s and picking up those books, there was no other book on the stands that looked like that. They really were unique visual objects, and they were expanding the the visual vocabulary of what the medium could do. And I and I think that that is just as important as getting aspects of the characters right. That's one of the reasons, again, that I think um, what the the best movies um, in the MCU do they don't just um, get character beats right and plot elements right. They will try to recreate in a contemporary way that feel of of uh, that, that that visual vocabulary that they inherited from the comics mm -hmm. yeah and it's it's reinterpreting the visual language from the page to the screen right. in a in a new way that that is just as effective in this in it in this own medium and so respectful of the medium is what i what, you know i mean i love that because i feel like it, it's not like i wanted you to do it's not like i want you to do what Zack snyder does in watchmen where you have kind of a frame by frame Recreation, you know, that isn't, that's 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 not my idea of, of what I'm of of it's it's a different kind that's a different kind of respect perhaps, mm -hmm. but it, but this is it's it's not going to necessarily translate to a to a particularly exciting cinematic experience or a pretty satisfying one, but to have someone working in one medium and recognize you know there's something going on over here that we can try in our own way reproduce we are, in the show itself right the Doctor Strange room in the Marvel show um, was in a way, part of that sort of media feedback loop, right? I, I, I wanted to pay tribute both to the movie and the comics. And one of the, the reason that I wanted to pay tribute to the movie was because the movie had tried in its own way to do that something the comics kind of do. When the buildings sort of fold in on themselves right. and you have that prismatically shifting... Like an MC Escher optical illusion. Right. For me, I was, I was watching that and thinking, okay, so somebody was re looking at the comics and thinking, how do we Ditkoize this this visually? And it doesn't involve actually making it look like Ditko. Escher is a better you know example. But there was somebody really thinking, how, I, how do I turn this into that? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, how do we turn that back into an experience that obviously we can't make the walls move. You know, we, we're not building a ride. We're building a, um, an exhibition. So how do we do this? Mirrors and projections but then what do you project, right? And I thought, well, the thing we could project is Ditko. Um, and then you, you, you're sort of somehow going back to the source. So I took one of my old Ditko uh, Doctor Strange books, and I put it on the scanner and just scanned the largest size TIFF files that I could of just two panels, and then sent them to the German design team and they animated individual elements in those panels mm -hmm. to project them on the walls in that room. So when I walk into that room, that's my comic book that is moving around cool. me, which is, which is very cool. But it also means you get that bend-a-dot effect, mm -hmm. which is not there in the reproduction. I wanted that. I wanted that sense of this is a comics page come to life. And that means not a contemporary reprint with flat color, but an old-school newsprint look. Right. So speaking of these artists like Ditko and Kirby and, and Ramita, did you ever have any correspondence or did they ever visit, uh, the family uh, members ever visit the exhibits? Like um, so kids, kids or anything like that? 
Um, uh, so I'm, I don't know how uh, so we, so Marvel asked if they could, um, handle any of our outreach to the Kirby family themselves. Um, so we didn't have direct, and I think that's because they have, they feel, I hope correctly that they have to some extent mended fences, um, with the Kirby family and that it's a good relationship now and that they wanted to, to, to control that. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. Um, in terms of, um, I tell you the highest, you know, sort of one, of one of the high points of reaction to this for me, Walt Simonson and Jerry Conway, who are both creators whose work meant an awful lot to me in the 80s, 70s and 80s, um, were photographed. Uh, it was on Walt's Twitter feed, um, the two of them sitting next to the sculpture of the thing mm -hmm. uh, in, my, in my show. And they're both just beaming. It's awesome. <laughs> And um, I think that's that that actually, yeah. If I like, that's that's my single most sort of you know that's that's been the best reaction moment that I've had. I mean, these two guys, you know, Conway kind of traumatized me as a child with the death of Gwen Stacy. You know, and I, I spent years thinking about that. I love his writing. I think he's a really significant writer in that field. And obviously, Walt, but one of the great writer artists of the medium, to have them both. I love his work on Thor. Yeah, me too. And have them both sitting there, you know, next to the thing, a character that they both clearly love. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Ben Grimm is, I think, for a lot of, of those old school creators, um, a favorite character. Um, you know, if you're forced to name a favorite Marvel Kirby character, most people will say the thing. Well, now that the, the thing and Fantastic Four are back with the MCU, I can't wait for them to get that right. Yeah, you know, you guys... So, so, I, so how do you think they... Do you think it can be? Here's a question for you. Um, sure. Do you think that the FF can be done as a live action property? Absolutely. Yeah? It just has to be handled correctly. Yeah. And I'm sure that Kevin Feige and all the visionaries at Marvel Studios are going to do an amazing job. It's what we've all uh, been waiting for. I, yeah, I just, just in the fact of uh, watching the, the Hulk evolve. Uh -huh. from the Angley. from the Ang Lee movie that uh, Jeremy and I have a special place in our hearts for uh -huh. um, a very far away place um, to where it is now is uh, you know I mean the technology just keeps getting better and the artists working on it you know the, the, the their minds can can expand that much further because of the technology and it really is just you know there is no limit now so I, I think they'd create something great. I, I think you know. I mean, for, for me, everything depends on everything depends on the script, of course. Yep, uh, and the and, casting. Um, but I have this. So, so here's here's the the. This isn't. I want to see this. I, happen. Sorry to interrupt, but I think Stanley's favorite bit of casting was Michael Chiklis as the thing. In really, the, in the first Fantastic Four, many years ago, and, which, and, which I which I agree with. He was he was cast perfectly, but probably the only one in that movie cast well. Yes. So here's here's the thing that I mean I think that I think of this is a joke that many people you know have made before me but you know that the best Fantastic Four movie is actually The Incredibles right and and I I do I think that the what that gets right is that it recognizes it recognizes that that part of the genius of what Lee and Kirby were doing with the FF is that it's the family book and um and it's that combination of the cosmic and the quotidian the sort of the banality of the ordinary frustrations of 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 family life um the ordinary bickering 
um, the small scale stuff um, set against the vast, most cosmic backdrops that, that, that you can conceive of. And, um, and so if they get that, you know, the Incredibles to some extent understands that. The other thing though, I think is when you have a character whose power is to stretch, I think all the other, you know, the human torch, uh, and the invisible girl and the thing, these are all powers that, um, I can imagine a contemporary special effects wizard having no problem with, but Mr. Fantastic's powers, when you move into a live action realm, and they push our our sense of our threshold of uh, our suspension of visual disbelief, which is different from an intellectual thing. Mm-hmm. When we're so used to cartoons where characters morph and stretch and change shape, um, and ba- I mean, you know, I think about Tom, you know, in Tom and Jerry cartoons, mm-hmm. you know, when Jerry drops the anvil on Tom's head and his head is it's the shape, the, yeah, he blinks and then pop, it comes back. Well, we'll totally accept that. So when you see Elastigirl in The Incredibles performing similar sort of stretchy moves, you just accept it as part of the visual vocabulary of animation, um, and and you will accept it on the on the on the drawn page. You know, part of I think one of the reasons that Mr. Fantastic is such a great creation of Kirby's um, is because, like Plastic Man before him. There's a pleasure of line that you can you can when you when I read those old FF books I can see Kirby having fun just drawing that stuff, just having fun imagining the 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 curve of that the, of that body that is no longer a body but has just become this sort of undulating line, um, and those are artists' pleasures and they're they're, they're very they're, they're pleasures that you associate that I associate with the experience of drawing animation uh, whether it's whether it's computer generated drawing or whether it's a pen to paper and and i i wonder whether that will ever fully translate to the live action medium there's a there's definitely a hill you got to climb over uh, it's a very to- it's a very good point i remember in in the fantastic four movies that they've made one of the things with mr fantastic that always failed miserably was that his clothes were stretching with his body right and even normal clothes and i'm watching this thinking that's got to be a mistake because that right. already it just it just fails Right. It's one thing right. to buy that his skin can stretch, but when he's wearing a normal suit that's right. stretching alongside his arms, it just looked completely wrong. Yeah, it's to do with these different media have different. This is going to sound really professory, but I can't. Uh, I'm not using jargon for jargon's sake. Uh, I'm trying to be um, precise about it. Right. These are different forms. This is we're talking about media specificity, and how different mediums change the way we we read and respond to them and in the case of animation and drawing versus live action we have different thresholds of verisimilitude different things that we will accept Mm -hmm. as persuasive and so the idea that the clothes are stretching with the body we will just accept in the same way that we will accept that when you know um the hulk uh um uh, shrinks back down um, his his pants shrink back down with him, or you know, in the same way that we will accept that that you know, whatever happened to Jimmy Olsen's body, which is morphing and changing all the time in the '60s, um, he still will always somehow manage to have a pair of underpants on that will protect his dignity. You know, um, you you never you don't get to see Jimmy Olsen's junk no matter what has happened. Right, but I'm and, I'm also from from the old school of uh, you know less is more. 
So uh-huh. for me, that's one of the reasons why I, growing up, loved the uh, the Incredible Hulk, the, the the show, was because it was basically Lou Ferrigno just painted green, and they just did some great soft dissolves or right. whatever it was that you let you fill in the blanks. Cutaways. Yeah, the cutaways, or as he's walking down a dark hallway, you see this big, huge silhouette turn into a regular-sized man's silhouette. You know, so. Right. For me, Mr. Fantastic is a genius. Let's keep it at that. And if he stretches right. a little bit here and there, then it maybe is a little bit more believable. Right. Um, right. But I love the fact that he's just the, the genius of the crew. You know, it's yeah. like my dad, who is like the smartest one in the family. You know, he could always yeah. fix something in the house. So now yeah. he's got to fix something that's about to crash to, to, to earth. No, I, I, tell, I think you're absolutely right. There, he's the, it's it's he's dad, and mm-hmm. so you can play. The all you could play to all kinds of dad humor and dad jokes, um, but he's also. I mean, this is I think why the one of the big mistakes of the most recent attempt to try and film it was was fear that a youth audience wouldn't buy into it unless you made him you know twelve years old or something. <laughs> and um, you know, it, it, it's well, no, that you know that that's not understanding. The moment they made that decision, I was worried because I thought, you know, that that suggests that people don't understand that this is about family. And if you don't have um, the first family. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't clocked to that and you haven't actually understood what what's important about about the project. I, I feel like I, I feel like The Incredibles sort of shows us the way. Mm-hmm. But I, but I also think it opens up this for me, just an interesting theoretical question, which you know, is way above my pay grade to try and solve, which is how you, how, how you take things that will work and will work really effectively in animation. Um, and maybe don't, you see, uh, I, part of me almost hopes I want, I, I know I have students who don't respect fantastic four at this point, right? They feel like it's like the lame, you, you, you know, you, the failed films. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the movies, because of the inability to translate those characters to that medium. And I just feel like if they did something like, you know, what was done with Spider-Verse, you know, where if you made a truly visually astonishing, um, as well as really well written and well cast, um, animated, uh, project, um, would that be really the way to sell people on the Fantastic Four? Mm -hmm. Because then you could make, because then you could make the version of the Fantastic Four that that I that I most hope to see, um, and you know I again this is like maybe there's more money in in live action on a global scale you know maybe there's all kinds of other reasons to want to try and 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 incorporate them into the regular MCU out of the gate, um, but I I worry about the the na- the, the nature of um, you know, I, I just think that there's very special joy that you can get, creative joy that you can get out of the some kinds of media, and they don't always translate to other media, and right. and and it's and that should be okay, right? I mean, you know, Beethoven's Ninth doesn't make a great movie; mm-hmm. it doesn't have to. It's Beethoven's Ninth, and Watchmen, frankly, would never make a great movie. Um, doesn't matter who directed it; it's that it's it's a it's so it's so much about the medium. It's mm-hmm. so much about being a comic. Um, and you could make a movie with great Watchmen themes. I think this upcoming TV show could be interesting from that point of view. You know, it got those themes, but, but um, you don't want a one-to-one. Not everything needs to be adapted. Some things you could just take what works and make it work in its new space. 
um, and not, you know, so I, so yeah, I, I, that's what I would, that's the, if I could talk to Kevin Feige, that's the conversation I would, I would be wanting to have, you know, you've got this incredible property, what's the medium that it works best in? Mm-hmm. So sticking with the Fantastic Four, and something that bothers me a little bit is the fact that Chris Evans was the Human Torch, uh-huh, and uh-huh. now he's Captain America. How do you feel about those uh, those types of characters? With also then Michael B. Jordan being the Human Torch, and then right. Killmonger, and now he's Killmonger. I think that you know, in a way, the, the, those are those other movies are so far off in a pocket universe, you know, that mm-hmm. I don't even think of them as. Um, um, I think it's partly to do with the genius of Marvel's own. I mean, I mean, the extent to, and to which Marvel Studios has just owned the competition on on these yeah. questions. Uh, I mean, I remember you know going to see X Men Two when it came out, um, and, and at the time thinking of it as like this is the best we've had so far. You know, yeah. um, it might have been in my, you know, it, you know there were like you know, I don't know, five superhero movies that it was number one, you know? Mm-hmm. And then so very quickly we got spoiled, you know, with the, the these the, the quality just got better and better and better. And there were you know, maybe some little there've been some little wobbles in the franchise, but they're really just little wobbles. And things that we would have been grateful for um, you know, fifteen years ago, like the an inhumans T V show. Um, you know, <laughs> sudden, suddenly become things like yeah it's not you know you're not hitting the mark that we're used to you know and so i think the bar is very high now right and those ff movies i kind of enjoyed them in the movie theater at the time i didn't hate them um but they were they feel so secondary to what has Mm. what has happened since um that yeah that doubleness of casting it just never it never even but i almost you almost forget chris evans was in the FF movies, know what I mean? I think he'd probably like yeah. to forget. <laughs> Although he did it, I think his, I actually think his performance is kind yeah, of an arrogant. It, it holds it, up. It, it, yeah, his performance holds up. I wanted to uh, get back to the uh, the minor uh, that you started. Sure. Tell us uh, a little bit more about when that began and and how uh, how you brought that about. Yeah. Um, so um, I was. Uh, um, I, I I had just I had got to I, I was hired at the University of Oregon to teach Shakespeare and um, 17th, 16th and 17th century poetry, mm-hmm. and um, I still do um, uh, teaching in those areas, um, and, um, and and I love that stuff. My first book was on John Donne, the 17th century poet, and um, but I had tenure after you know you, the process of the career structure is you write a book and you go up for this you know I'd been teaching here for six years without tenure and they gave me tenure um, and and that is uh, that's the reason that system exists is to give you the freedom to explore maybe things that not everybody would necessarily approve of um, you know not everyone in the world thinks it's a good idea that there should be university classes um, or museum shows for that matter devoted to this kind of pop cultural material there are still people out there it's like meeting people who still think that hip-hop is dangerous or something it's always, mm-hmm. it's always funny mm-hmm. um you're kind of like wow you, you i didn't know there were any of you left it's sort of cool you know um but there there are people who have those sorts of resistances and i was in a protected place where i could teach these classes as an experiment and it wouldn't get me into trouble basically 
So, so was that how it was it originally just an experiment? So it was just an experiment. I mean, I was a fan. I, I had been away from comics for a little while. I hadn't been in a comic store in about eight years. You know, I'd gone through some stuff, life stuff, sure. uh, campaigning on getting my this job and, and working very hard in that 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 traditional field, um, some relationship stuff, adjusting to the reality of realizing I probably was going to be not going to go back to Wales, but really committed to living in the United States. All, all those kinds of things were happening. Um, and, um, I, I, I walked into a comic book store for the first time in, um, in some years and it just all, this, this old love just came flooding back. And I think lightning struck you from Asgard. Yeah. And I was, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And I was lucky in that it was at a moment where the Marvel universe in particular was having a bit of a renaissance. I think in the nineties, it was a bit of a bleak time. Um, there were a lot of problems, um, a lot of talented creators who couldn't do what they wanted to do necessarily, a lot of mismanagement at the top of the company, um, bankruptcy. Um, yeah. And um, and Marvel was coming back from that. Joe Quesada was, was um, really hiring some, some interesting people and they were making some brave creative decisions. So when I walked back into this comic book store, it was like, oh, you know, there's Mike Allred and, and Pete Milligan doing this X-Men book, which isn't about the um, X-Men as metaphor for difference, but more about celebrity and it's kind of funny and clever and looks great. You know, I mean, I love all its art. And then um, uh, there was uh, things like, they were doing things like the one of the, they had commissioned one of the bravest Captain America stories ever written, I think, which is um, the uh, Robert Morales scripted Truth, Red, White and Black, um, which is scandalously out of print, but I think is actually... I think one of the bra- one of the bravest books on the topic of race that any comic book company has ever published. And um, uh, do you guys know that book, Truth, Red, White, and Black? No, no I don't. I didn't. Oh man, if you could track it down, it got, the, the hardcovers go for like a hundred bucks on Amazon right now because it's out of print. But you might maybe there's a Kindle version. Um, uh, it's um, the concept of this book is so great. It's like, what if uh, Morales, who is a, he, he's passed away now, but his pitch was basically, look, you're telling me that Captain America is the product of a military experiment in the 1940s when the U.S. military is famously racially segregated, right? There's no way they tried this formula out on the white grunt first. Mm. <laughs> there must have been like a, a guinea bu- pig. Yeah, there must have been a bunch of African-American soldiers who were guinea pigs. Interesting. What is their story? Wow. And then, and then he tells that story. Um, so it's about the first man. So basically, it's a story that says the first man who wears the Captain America uniform is actually a black man. Hmm. Um, and um, I think the upcoming Disney Plus show, which is going to focus on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh-huh. but the Falcon uh, picking up the shield is going to deal with similar themes. That's what yes. I, the rumors are, anyway. Uh, which would be coming, I'm assuming, from Nick Spencer's run on the book in the last few years. And I think that, that you know, I thought those were brave books as well. Although it's one thing to say Steve Rogers passed on the shield. It's another thing to say, and then the way this is presented is Steve doesn't know this. Part of the plot of, of Truth, Red, White, and Black is that Steve Rogers discovers that this history of his own origin has been hidden from him. Mm. Um, and so it's it's a and wants to meet then the man who first wore uh, the costume. Hmm. Um, so it's 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 a beautiful, brave book, and 
there's no way in hell it would have been published if it hadn't been kind of like a Hail Mary moment for the company. Um, and these were the kinds of things that had been happening in just the last couple of years um, when I came, you know, sort of back in a in a serious way as a as a fan. And um, I was just, and, you know, and of course, you have what Bendis is doing in the Ultimate Universe that was also going on at the same time. You know, the, a real reboot of of of, uh, of Peter Parker for the twenty first century. So I just thought this is really exciting stuff and how cool it would be to teach a real history of the superhero class that starts with Superman in 1938 and then allow students to compare, you know, uh, across those distances. I mean, you can just imagine those classes would almost teach themselves. You know, if you give students Spider-Man in 1962 and Spider-Man in 2002, where they're telling essentially the same story and you just ask them, what gets left out, what gets expanded, what gets changed, um, what stays the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an hour-long discussion. And because and, then you can say, okay, why did they change that? Now, why is that character now female instead of male? Why is this character in, you know, now a character of color? Why, did, why does it take in Bendis' reboot of, um, uh, of, of uh, Spider-Man Origin Uncle Ben doesn't die till the fourth issue of Ultimate Spider-Man, mm -hmm. right? Uncle Ben is in three panels of the original story, right? right? Three, and if you think of it, there's so, there's so much good stuff to talk about. It's not like one is better than the other necessarily, but Amazing Fantasy 15, the Spider-Man origin story, it's kind of like a perfect comic. It's 11 pages, and you see Ben in just three panels, but the emotional weight of the story all turns on his loss. And they did that without, you barely know the character. And then, when you come back to this now with different ways of thinking about storytelling, and particularly comic book storytelling, suddenly Ben goes from being this guy you only see in three panels to being a guy who's around for four full issues before he actually bites the big one. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that, that's a, a radical revision that tells you um, not just things about how our, how our attitudes towards these characters have changed, but those are really interesting different ideas about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I put that in front of students and the best students will just run with that. Yeah. You know? So so you asked actually though like what, what, how this sort of came about and it came about in part because I just got excited about it and put it in front of students and then their excitement was, um, it was intense. And this is before the MCU, you know, this is before the Iron Man. Mm -hmm. uh, my first of these classes was 2005, 2006, something like that. And again, you I was were just, just ahead of the curve. I was lucky. I, yeah, exactly. I, 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 it was just like weird around this material. You know, everything else I love in life, I've always shown up late. Mm -hmm. but, um, <laughs> but for some reason with comics um, and particularly the superhero genre, um, I seem to have been just lucky enough to sort of be around and I happen to live then in I live in Eugene which is less than two hours from Portland and Portland was rapidly becoming in the first decade of the 21st century uh, Comics Town USA there are more creators per capita living in Portland than I think anywhere else including New York at this point so many people were moving there um, so many writers were already there. Partly, I think it was to do with Dark Horse being there, but now Image is there, and mm. IDW has an office there, and the Periscope Studio is there, and um, 
you know, Kelly Sue DeConnick and Matt Fraction and Greg Rucker and Jen Van Meter and Brian Michael Bendis and Matt Johnson and, um, uh, you know, I mean, the, the lot of, at, at Steve uh, Leiber and... Do you get uh, guest lectures uh, from this group in your class? They, so Greg was the very... Greg Rucker was the first person who ever visited one of my classes. He came to the very first class I taught. Um, Brian came a few weeks after that. Um, Greg has since come down um, every single time I've asked him to, pretty much. And um, uh, he's been amazing. Um, uh, 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 and it's it's a... Um, but yeah, we have creators. Um, you know, I have plans to teach at the end of this coming term um, a class on Matt Fraction's hook and David Aha's Hawkeye, and assuming Matt doesn't have, uh, you know, discussions in Hollywood about one of his shows, upcoming shows or something, he's going to come to visit to the, the class and talk to my my students about writing those Hawkeye books. So yeah, I can introduce students to creators, um, and um, and that's very exciting for the, for any of them who have any kind of vocational interest you know people who want to enter the industry uh, and, and have no idea how so yeah we've had we've had Bendis teacher writing comics class for us we've had um, uh, Jen Van Meter teacher writing comics class for us right now Matt Johnson um, who wrote the book Incognito uh, which was a New York Times bestseller about um, racial passing it's a brilliant book he just got hired into creative writing here so finally I have someone who hmm. who has a professional comics book creator who's actually permanently here now awesome. uh, so yeah yeah it, it's it's been amazing so uh, just a just a quick question you know when I was in uh, college I always looked for the easy class you know the easy a is, uh -huh. uh, is your class that because it, in, in my eyes it's like uh, I would study and read and do everything my my professor asked me to do in this class right it's well it's a lot easier to get an A if you like the material and are willing to do the work mm -hmm. So, um, so from that point of view, perhaps it's no, absolutely not an easy A for for the kids who show up, hoping that this will be easier than my 17th century poetry class. If they're not enthusiasts and, and are not going to do the re no, it's not. It's hard. I mean, the, uh, 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 there are students who will be shocked mm -hmm. by. Um, the kind of thinking that we're asking them to do because it's not uh, and there's a it's a gamble too if you start to think i'm almost reluctant to use the word critically because people misunderstand that term they think that means always negative what i'm really i mean it in the more traditional sense of thinking analytically but if you are if you're interested in thinking doing close reading of any form of popular culture and if you're interested in thinking hard about how it was made, um, and the implications of its themes and acts of representation, social, political, and aesthetic. I'm not just a political critic guy. I'm very interested in the aesthetic. Um, and um, But if you want to get people to think about those things, their relationship to the material will change. You guys will know this as 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 you know people who, who as creative people yourselves, right? You will have a sense that. Um, when you think like a practitioner, you know, I mean, when you go and watch movies and the opening titles happen, right, you're, you're watching to see how they made these, right? Right. right. Uh, you have a different sense of... You're you seeing have it through a different lens. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it can, 
and and it can be a heightened thing. You can sometimes take greater pleasure because you're a, some. Sometimes people will just blow you like, "Whoa! I never thought you could do that." That's cool, and you will appreciate it more than other people in the room. But sometimes it will be, it will change your pleasure. You you will you will you will recognize every cliche and the plot twist. You'll be much more aware of when a deadline pressure was happening. You'll know when someone cut a corner. Um, and or you may just become tired of certain modes of representation. You know, you may walk into a classroom on the superhero not thinking that the issue of race and representation is very important at all. And by the end of the class, you'd be quite dissatisfied. You might be thinking honestly to yourself, wow, what does it say about our culture that we really, that it's very hard to imagine a black Batman? Mm-hmm. That it might be easier, that it's, e- and what does it say about the genre that it's easier to imagine a black Spider-Man mm-hmm. than a black Batman? The answer to that, of course, is about wealth and class, right? Uh, you can imagine, you know, Peter Parker co- comes from Queens. It's not hard to, you know, we know that there are people who aren't millionaires who come from Queens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a, uh, yeah, those are not questions necessarily that the students show up thinking they're going to ask. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I, and sometimes those questions will change, they get, you know, it change your pleasure. You might not, you, you'll feel like, oh, is this going to spoil it for me? I yeah, I was I was reading uh, some of the essays in "Do the Gods Wear Capes," uh, your incredible book, and uh, I read the Superman one. I read the Wonder Woman one, and then I read the Iron Man sex uh-huh. scene essay, and I'll never watch that that scene the same again. Uh, it was eye opening. Uh, so yeah, I can I can totally understand, uh, you know, seeing these stories and these comics in a completely new light. Yeah, I, that moment. Um... Oh, uh, uh, I am very, uh, I'll tell you a story about that. I'm very proud of that moment. I, I was, but when, so the guys who did the superheroes decoded documentary, um, called me up to interview me to see if they wanted me to, you know, to fly me down to LA for that, for that production. And, um, and uh, one, and the guy said, Oh, I've read your book, um, but I haven't finished it yet. So I haven't got to the Iron Man chapter yet. And I said, oh, so you haven't got to the anal fisting scene yet. <laughs> and, um, and he cracked up, um, assuming I was joking. Right? And I said, oh, no, 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 that's, you'll, it's there. You'll see it. Um, so then eventually they, they flew me down and he said, I read it. I read, <laughs> I read that sequence. That's going to be in and, the, uh, the headline of this podcast. We're going to get so many downloads now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure you know if it's 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 old hat at this point, right? Uh, it's but but it's it's cyborg anal fisting, which makes it more interesting, right? Um, cyborg sex. But I I um, he said that they were at that time trying to get Robert Downey Jr. to also appear in that documentary, and he said that what he wanted having when he read my book, he thought I want to put this in front of him and have him read it aloud. I want. And I thought, oh my God, I could reti- I would retire, Amazing. you know, I mean, like I, to have him read that sequence, that pay, that paragraph out of the book. Um, unfortunately, Mr. Downey Jr. said no, and so you know, to, but because <laughs> he seems like he's got a sense of humor, I yeah. think he would. I think he might enjoy enjoy sure. that. Moment. Yeah. <laughs> and for your listeners, now they will have to go and revisit actually- it. Yeah, find Do the Gods Wear Capes and read the Iron Man chapter, and you will find an anal fisting sequence. <laughs> it's going to be on FX tonight, so I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> it's on FX every other night. 
Can you talk a little bit about your work on the Peanuts? Charles Schulz is the Peanuts. Uh, oh, sure. Um, so that was, um, you know, another one of those wonderful pieces of American popular culture that I discovered fairly young and in some ways probably didn't even appreciate fully um, when I discovered it. Um, but I'm a lifelong fan. Um, and there are so many things about Schultz's achievement. Um, you know, he did 17,897 strips. Wow. 17,897 strips. And that's not quite the number that you would expect for 50 years. It's like a, a handful shy for doing one every day for 50 years. But that's because he took one month off in um, 1997, 47 years into the run. He took a month off. So, um, you know, Schultz is just like, I mean, as a, that's as, just as a human phenomenon, you know, the guy is the guy is amazing. And then I think that of the I think the first 10, 15, no, the first 15 years of Peanuts, um, uh, you just get to watch this guy discovering more and more what he can do with this little media, this underrated medium. It's four panels a day and, you know, six or eight panels on a Sunday. And every year that he works on the strip between 1950 and, let's say, I'd go as far as 1974, the first 25 or so years of the strip, every year he seems to find a, a new thing that he can do with this. Um, you know, so that Snoopy slowly goes from being... Snoopy in those first um, strips is a dog, a regular dog. Chases kids around when they've got food in their pockets, is always on all fours, um, never has a thought, right? Never, uh, and then there's this point where Snoopy starts to think, and then there's this point where Snoopy goes from all fours to walking on his hind legs, and at that moment, Snoopy has stopped being a dog and has become a little emblem for the human imagination, um, and he's going to go to World War One as a fighter pilot. Um, and he's going to be a world champion tennis player, and he's going to be a lawyer, and he's going to be an explorer, and he's going to be um, uh, an ice hockey player. And, you know, it's like that's it. Uh, um, and when people think of the strip as having this sort of sad and doer side to it, which it also really does, um, it, it's nev never in the case of Snoopy. In, in the case of Snoopy, you have this emblem of human creativity and the imagination. And in the case of Charlie Brown, you have this emblem of frustration and misery and isolation and failure. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've reread, you know, if you go back and read uh, um, Peanuts from, let's say, 1954, 1955, that shit is bleak. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is so sad. And, um, uh, and Lucy just kicks him in the balls over and over and over again um and it's um and i just think it's a masterpiece i think it's one of the i think it's one of the great american masterworks in any medium um and so i'd always wanted to write i didn't uh, uh, so i teach it but i didn't know what to write about it i did a little show um we borrowed artwork from the from genie schultz and the schultz museum down there in santa rosa um i was able to borrow 25 originals and I chose five from every decade of the strip. So it was like you could 
walk in and with a turn of your head, you would see a half century wow. of development. Um, the very earliest strip they have in their collection is one where he doesn't even have the zigzag on the t-shirt on Charlie Brown's shirt yet, and Snoopy very much a dog. And and the last one um, was a Sunday that ran maybe um, four or five weeks before Schultz died, and um, it's um, Peppermint Patty and Marcy in the rain. Charlie Brown isn't in it, um, and uh, Patty is refusing to give up. The, you know, even though the rain is pouring, um, why isn't why isn't everybody still playing the game? Um, and um, and basically saying, but we did have fun, didn't we, Chuck? We had fun, didn't we? And I thought it was just heartbreaking because it's this voice in the wilderness, you know. And and he he was he was dying. I don't know if he knew he was dying at that point. I think uh, the stroke that took him out in some ways really, you know, didn't completely take him out. Took him a bit by surprise. Leveled him in a way that made his last month or so on earth very difficult um but he th there's this weird sense of almost predicting him going away you know and this is a guy who and then of course when the last one ran the last he died the morning that the last um sunday ran wow yeah so that's a man who lived lived inside that work mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know i've written a little bit about peppermint patty as a kind of a figure of queer desire or, or, or uh, trans identification and, and I just think that's um, because I think again the character is uh, what's fascinating for me about that is that Schultz never um, un he doesn't go he doesn't hit you over the head with that it's not like a thing that he's going to highlight oh here's our character who is you know non non-binary or gender non-conforming or anything like that that it doesn't feel in any way like pandering but the character is nonetheless immediately I picked up in that way so that you know Patty Patty is an icon of, of in queer culture you know I mean it, it's so that when for example when the Supreme Court made the decision um, uh, 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 recognizing um, the legality of gay marriage in Entertainment Weekly um, when they covered that the image that they had was a picture of Patty and Marcy holding hands and underneath it says it's legal right um or if you think of like the jokes in you know there's jokes in so much contemporary popular culture and there's a family guy episode where patty and marcy have grown up and are in a relationship there's uh it's a conversation that they have in big bang theory about whether um patty is um lesbian identified or quote unquote just athletic and whether marcy is actually Lesbian, but so it's like it's it's well established in our in 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 the popular culture that these are um, uh, these characters have a, a kind of a, a queer significance, mm -hmm. um, and so I just thought it would be interesting to to just reflect on this. So I tried to think about that, what that means from the point of view of what Schultz and Matt may have imagined he was doing. What and I think of I think Patty is in her own way every bit as important and original a creation as Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Schultz himself thought so. Schultz thought that he had only invented, besides Charlie Brown, he'd only created two characters that could have supported a strip by themselves. One was Snoopy and the other was Peppermint Patty. So uh, I, I guess my, so I think that my, the, my written work on Peanuts is kind of a love letter to Patty. <laughs> Amazing. So what's next for you? Are there, are there any new books in the works, any new exhibits uh, that you're working on that you'd like to share with us? 
Sure. So um, the show is just keeps on rolling, and um, the contract that um, the producers signed with Marvel covers quite a few years of time. So, and Marvel keep producing new content. So you're able and, to add to it as the films come out. Yeah. So we're oh, adding right. and changing. We kind of have to. I mean, the version of the show that you guys will have seen in in Philly was actually in some ways quite different from the show that uh, ran in Seattle, hmm. and. Um, Partly that's to do with, you know, um, borrowing objects from private collectors. There are lenders, who, when the, sh and when the show um, finishes its current run in Canada, there will be a few lenders who've given objects to us to display that at that point we'll have had them for two years. And, you know, these are people's privately owned art objects. Mm -hmm. Some of them are going to want them back. And so I'm just going to have to keep thinking about how we can maintain the quality and that kind of, whoa, I can't believe they found that, I can't believe they had that kind of a feeling. Um, even though I've got to give some of that art back, I need to bring, I need to find more collectors, basically, who have work of that kind of quality, just so that I'm not asking the same very generous individuals over and over again for their mm -hmm. stuff. Right. Um, so that's one project. Um, right now I'm also writing a series of introductions for some collections of classic Marvel comics that's going to come out from um, a traditional uh, publisher. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name the publisher yet. That's probably going to get announced um, in the next few weeks. But it, the fun part of that is that I'm getting to write. I'm kind of curating the Marvel Universe in a different way for what I hope will be a new generation of readers. Um, uh, you know, as kind of like a, a cherry picking from, you know, the first... Um, 50 issues of the X-Men and, and, and trying to give you the one volume. You know, you don't want to read 50 issues of the X-Men from the 60s, but you're curious. Here's the one volume version with the introductory essay and the back matter. and You know, that's, so I'm, I'm getting to think about all those things right now. and, and uh, I, I, I just can't believe it, really. This is not how obviously when I got hired to teach Shakespeare and 17th century poetry, this was not something that I predicted as being my daily life. It's amazing, really. It's awesome. You... Well, it's great. I mean, the, the, your, your passion for it shows in the exhibits, so, uh, so we appreciate that. You know, we, we, same thing. When we started Perception, we, we had uh, Marvel as our top client to, uh, well, in, in New York terms, attack. Uh -huh. And never say no, you know, never, never say die attitude uh, type thing. And, um, and it's, it's what got us where we are today, so... Um, you know, we appreciate people like you who take their passion to the next level and, and, and share it with everybody. So, favorite comic book? Spider-Man. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man. Okay. Is favorite character? Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, this, this is a lot easier than I thought. Uh, favorite MCU movie? Oh, uh, Ragnarok, I think. I think. Okay. Uh, favorite yeah, actor in the movie? favorite actor in an mcu movie or yes. just um oh that's so hard but it's probably robert downey jr okay and your superpower that you would want to have um stock market manipulation <laughs> <laughs> what's your uh, most prized comic that you own um my uh, uh, my Watchman One is signed by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, so probably that. Yeah. 
Well, Ben, uh-huh. thank you so much. This was uh, this was a true honor for us. We had a blast. We could probably go another hour with you easily. Um, before I wrap up, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they find you online? Do you have any social channels? You know, so the easiest way for anyone who wants to actually find me is just via email, and that's just ben at uoregon.edu. I have the best email address ever. That's just great. Just ben at uoregon. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, this no. is awesome. Thanks. Thank you both. It, I, I, I feel uh, privileged to have been invited to talk to you both. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.